I stood on the mountaintop in Israel and looked across to little Bethlehem. And through my mind there raced those immortal lines of Phillips Brooks. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I have marveled through the years at those two last lines. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Has it ever occurred to you that when Jesus came, this old world was in a wretched condition that reminds us of the headlines today? There were famines and pestilences and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars. Men's hearts were failing them for fear. There was excessive taxation. There was poverty and pollution. There was a form of godliness without the power. There was demonism rampant. There were hippies. There was religion that was cold and meaningless and God's people were under the bondage of an alien power. And a faithful few who were looking for the Messiah, they wore flowing robes and we wear dress suits, but same gods but different names. Then Jesus came, and when he came, he made a difference. He's made a difference ever since, such a difference that all history and all humanity, past, present, and future, is judged by its relation to Jesus Christ. Celebrities are marched across the stage of history, but they haven't made much difference. Jesus Christ is the test by which men are judged because he precipitates a crisis and every man's destiny is determined by what he does about Jesus Christ. I wish people knew John 3.19 as well as they know John 3.16. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And the word condemnation there in the original is the word crisis. It's just spelled with a K is the only difference. This is the crisis. It's not Watergate. This is the crisis that light has come into the world and every man stands in judgment before that light. A man may make other decisions and be temporarily the worse for it. But if a man makes a wrong decision about Jesus Christ, he is eternally the worse for it. When Jesus came, he made a difference in every life he touched. There was one day when a wicked woman started to a well to draw water, and in sin and shame she little dreamed that before sunset she'd be a new woman and start a revival and convert all the neighbors. And it all began when Jesus came and sat on the well. And through the centuries, these poor wretches from the outermost and the uttermost and the guttermost have found in him the answer to depravity. From the sordid to the sacred, from bums to believers, he breaks the power of canceled sin, sets the prisoner free, turns uh, misery into melody, heartaches into hallelujahs, 
makes heavenly harmony where there was demonic discord, lifts men out of a horrible pit, sets their feet on a rock, puts a new song in their mouth, even praise to our God. He's the answer, therefore, first of all, to depravity. We've never had more of it. We don't hear much about it. That's not because we have any less of it. I heard of a faithful old preacher who had preached a sermon on the depravity of the human heart, and somebody came up and said, I just can't swallow this depravity of the human heart you've been preaching about. And the old preacher said, you don't have to swallow it. It's already in you. <laughs> and so I'd say tonight, whether we like it or not, we've got it. It's there. All ages come under this guilt. I think about Dr. Raymond Taylor in Greensboro. My pastor a few years ago said, I want you to meet a remarkable man, new Christian. Dr. Raymond Taylor is head of the drama department of the University of North Carolina, just across the street from where I live. Building named in his honor stands there. He was an old infidel, an unbeliever for 70 odd years. And his wife prayed for 45 of those years that he'd become a Christian. He didn't get into a revival, he didn't attend any great crusade, but in the middle of the night, he tells me, God woke him up, showed him what a miserable sinner he was, and he got saved. Now he's like a kid with a new toy. I never saw anything like it. He's about 76 and going everywhere, bragging on Jesus Christ. We have a great time. We get together every once in a while. He was at church last Sunday, one of the deacons, head of the evangelism committee, and with his brilliant mind, his world travel, his acquaintance with many languages and all the rest of it, he is digging into the Bible in a phenomenal way. And I'm amazed at how God has given him insights so soon into truths that some of the rest of us didn't find, if indeed we ever did, for a long time. That can be explained by only one thing. Then Jesus came. Nothing else. Then you remember there was another poor woman dying of an incurable disease, health gone, money gone. There came a day when she started another drab and dismal 12 hours, just about like any other day. And then she heard a commotion and looked out. People were hurrying and scurrying from every direction. She said, what's going on here? Jesus of Nazareth going through town. If anybody could have sung past me, not O gentle Savior, I think she could. Somehow this poor, sick soul got herself together and wrapped a few old clothes around herself, got into the crowd, if only I can touch the hem of the garment. Now remember, she was about dead, money all gone. I don't know how she did it, dying and destitute. And it's not nice to elbow your way through a crowd. Ladies don't do it unless there's a sale on at the department store. And here she went. But she was desperate. And when you're desperate, you can do what you can't do. I'm sure some of those folks must have said, what does she mean barging up here? Look at that old dress. Why doesn't she stay back where she belongs? But she made it. Others thronged him and she touched him. And he stopped all of a sudden and said, who touched me? I've never seen that done by any artist. I don't know why somebody hasn't tried it. And Peter said, Lord, why would you ask that? In a crowd like this, shoving and pushing, why would you ask who touched me? Ah, but this was a different kind of a touch. He said, I felt power go out, virtue go out. This is another kind of a touch. 
And uh, what a day for that poor woman that started like any other day. Then Jesus came. And I think of that gathering demoniac, that maniac, that wild man that men couldn't tame and chains couldn't bind, living in a graveyard, screaming and cutting himself with stones. Then Jesus came. And the demons departed into the hogs, and the man departed for home. And if you think there aren't any demoniacs today, think again. And not all in the insane asylums, they leer at you from the newspapers and TV, and you pass them on the streets, and we're living in an epidemic of demonism. Every other book now is about demons. Besides, I think they're overdoing it. I get to where I want to look under the beds at night after reading some of these books. But you see it in alcoholism, drug addiction. You hear it in rock and roll. You read it in the hideous crimes, for this is not ordinary meanness. This is devil possession. The psychiatrist has his name for it, and the sociologist's have their name for it, and the liberal preachers say that Jesus merely accommodated himself to the prevailing ideas of his time, but he had the word for it. He's the answer not only to depravity and to despair, but to demonism. No devil in the first two chapters of the Bible, no devil in the last two. Jesus disposes of that problem as every other. Then it must have been a sad day in Bethany. Lazarus was ill, and his troubled sister sent an SOS to Jesus. He whom thou lovest is sick. And then followed a very astonishing reply. Wouldn't you have thought that Jesus would hurry down there post-haste? Bible says that he abode two days where he was. Took his time. There is a love that tarries, doesn't get in a hurry. And when Jesus came, they said, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. There was distress, there was death, there was delay, there was disappointment, but before the day was over, Lazarus was out of his grave, not of his grave clothes, and the word was all over town, and the devil was mad, and the enemies of my Lord were alarmed. Made a big difference in Bethany when Jesus came. And it was a big day in that little town called Nain. He ran into a funeral procession. The only son of a widow was on his way to burial. Jesus never conducted funerals. He broke them up. You never learned how to conduct a funeral. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John can't find any directions. They didn't have them. Not there. Jesus took care of that. When he came, death couldn't hold its victims. When he died, dead men rose and walked around Jerusalem. When he comes again, all dead men arise. Jesus answered not only depravity and despair and demonism, but death because he conquered death and through death destroyed him that had the power of death and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And he said to John on Patmos, you don't have to fear life because I'm he that liveth and you don't have to fear death because I'm he that was dead, and you don't have to fear eternity because I'm alive forevermore. I'm the great I am. I'm not the great I was. There's only one thing that Jesus ever was. He was dead. But he didn't stay dead. And he's the eternal contemporary. The infinitudes of Almighty God and never put him in a past tense. He's the great I am. That's why the crowd got so mad. Before Abraham was, my Lord said, he didn't say I was, I am. And after my Lord rose from the dead came Jesus, and he's the answer to discouragement. 
It says the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Now, I like the way the King James puts it, came Jesus. It doesn't say Jesus came. It says came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. I wonder if somebody here tonight's living in, in behind a closed door in a closed door session with your fears. And the answer is found in two words, came Jesus. And Thomas wasn't there. He missed one prayer meeting and was an infidel for a whole week. You better go to prayer meeting. <clears throat> and he said, I'll never believe it till I have the testimony of the senses. Well, now he was asking for a lesser blessing than he already had, and you do that sometimes, because the greatest blessing, as is pointed out twice in Scripture, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed, and Peter puts it in his epistle, I think he never forgot what Jesus said on this occasion. I think it's a matter of memory with Peter writing it, his epistle. And he was saying, I have to feel and see to know. Jesus allowed him to do that, but he missed the greatest blessing. You and I come in on the other. We haven't seen him. We haven't seen the marks in the hands and feet. He thrust our hand into his side, but we have a greater privilege. So this dissolves our doubt because discouragement and doubt just cannot coexist in the same room with a living Christ. No matter what he touched, it was changed. Four salty fishermen were about their business, and then came Jesus and promoted them to the biggest fishing business in the world, fishing for souls. And a customs collector sat at a desk, and then Jesus came and said, follow me, and he folded up his papers and started out to become one of the writers of the Bible. And a little Jewish tax collector for the Roman government, despised by his people, got caught in a crowd when Jesus came, went up a tree to get a better view. Nobody likes a tax collector. They don't like them now. And somebody said the Revolutionary War was fought over taxation without representation. They said you ought to see it now with representation. <laughs> well, the Lord knows when you're up a tree. Jesus came along, looked up, and said, Come down, Zacchaeus, I have a dinner engagement at your house. That's the first he'd heard about that. The Lord knows when you're up a tree. Come on down, and he did, and he straightened out and was saved and became a respectable citizen, all because Jesus came. And a little later, Simon Peter led these lonely disciples on a fishing trip that was a complete failure. Next morning came Jesus, stood on the shore and had breakfast ready with a fish cookout. And on that shore, he reinstated Peter, that backslidden disciple, who denied his Lord at one fire and was restored at another. Have you ever studied Peter between two fires? And a lot of people are living today between two fires. He was out in the court where they'd build a fire, and you have no business warming at the enemy's fire anyhow. The devil always has a comfortable fire out in the courtyard where they're denying Jesus. So he got out there with that crowd and... He had some miserable days until by another fire on the beach he met the Lord. And I think of that paralytic that lay helpless day by day until 
Jesus came. Four friends tore up a house roof to get him to the Savior. I think maybe if we'd tear up more roofs today, do the unusual if necessary to get people to him, things might happen. And the man who had come with his back on the bed went out with his bed on his back. Something had happened. And it always does when Jesus comes. I'm tired of these dull, dry meetings where he's barely recognized. I'm tired of the dullness of our church life today. I heard of a preacher who met one of his delinquent members and said, I haven't seen you for some time at church. He said, no, you know how it's been. Children been sick and it's rained and rained and rained. And the preacher said, well, it's always dry at church. He said, yeah, that's another reason I haven't been coming. <laughs> Jesus never neutralized people. You had to do something. They had to take a stand for or against. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth the broken. And there came a day when only one disciple remained. That lonely man sat on a desolate island in a restless sea. No wonder he said when he saw the new heaven and new earth there was no more sea. I think John had had his fill of sea. He never wanted to see another one. And so he put that down so that all of us could read it. Here he was on exile, in exile for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now he might have asked, is this all I get for being a soldier of the cross and a follower of the Lamb to be banished in my old age to this forsaken spot? Looked like persecution, but it was promotion. It always is when God orders it. For one day Jesus came with his eyes like fire and his face like the sun and his voice like the sound of many waters. And the same John who had laid his head on the breast of Christ as he was here in the flesh, I didn't lay his head on the breast of that Christ. Dropped like a dead man in his presence. He saw Jesus in more forms than anybody else. He saw him as he walked about here on earth. He saw him in his resurrection body, but he saw him in his glorified body. And that knocked him out. Sometimes I think if on a Sunday morning just for a change we could have one little fleeting glimpse of the glorified Christ. We wouldn't go out saying a lot of the silly things we say a minute after we get out the door. We probably would fall like John did, but Jesus said, I'm the everlasting one. I've come to give you a preview of what is to come, the meaning of history and the secret of destiny. The World's Fair in New York, they had a Futurama. But here is the Futurama. My Lord gave it to John on Patmos. I spent five days in Jerusalem. And of a morning I'd get up before day and sit by the window, look out on that old heap of dust. Desolate's the word my Lord used, O Jerusalem, that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathereth her chickens under wings, and you would not behold. Our house is left unto you desolate, and that is exactly the word. I'm not talking about the new Jerusalem with all its apartment houses. I'm talking about the old one. That old city has been invaded and captured and sacked and pillaged and destroyed and rebuilt, and three temples have risen and disappeared, and Shishak and Sennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar and Antiochus Epiphanes, 
and Pompey and Titus and the Persians and the Saracens and the Turks and the Crusaders and Saladin and the Ottomans and Allenby have all left their footprints. And it has survived with a gory past and a glorious future. And Jesus Christ is not only the answer to depravity and despair and demonism and discouragement and doubt and defeat. It's the answer to Jerusalem's desolation because one of these days he's coming back. And I sent the rest of the crowd away one afternoon. I said, I want to stay here on top of the Mount of Olives. And I spent the afternoon by myself. And I found myself praying, I don't know when you're coming, Lord, but I know where. You're going to land right here on top of this hill, according to my Bible. I'd like to be on the spot. I'm here now. I'd like to join the reception committee if you'd like to show up any time. Well, he didn't show up at that time, but he said he's going to. I said at the outset that when Jesus came, this world was in a condition not unlike our times today. Well, we've made the circuit. We've run the cycle, and here we are again. And civilization has reached an impasse. No man knows the answer to a single problem that we face today. You name it. There is not one single solitary problem today that anybody knows the answer to so far as human intelligence is concerned, yet we're supposed to be the smartest crowd that ever came along. And we don't know the answer to any. But he knows the answer to the dilemma of all mankind. Now, I've said all this just to say this, what he's done for others he can do for you. He has the answer to your depravity and your despair and your discouragement and your doubt and your defeat and your dilemma. Some years ago, two good friends of mine, one now in heaven, wrote a song, Then Jesus Came. Oswald Smith got a letter from him the other day, well in his 80s, precious letter. Said, I lost my dear wife a year and a half ago and I miss her more now than ever. They wrote this precious song, and I know what some of you are saying. You're saying, well, I wish I could have been in a meeting when Jesus came. I wish I could be in a meeting where Jesus came. I wonder if it would be possible for us to realize, actually, we're always talking about that you're in such a meeting now. For two or three gather in my name, I'm there. In the midst of them. I've quit asking the Lord to be with us in the service. He is. If he's not here, what are we doing here? Now, we believe in his presence, but we're not aware of it. He's here right now. If we had our resurrection eyes, we could see him. When he was here, everyone who came found his needs met. My Lord's not changed. Come unto me and I'll give you rest. Him that cometh to me I'll no wise cast out. But don't forget that of all these folks that I've talked about, every one of them had one outstanding characteristic. He or she was desperate. There wasn't anything complacent about this crowd. They were all up against it. And all the way through the Bible, whether Jacob at Jabbok or Moses at the Red Sea or Gideon in the 300 or the 
lepers in the gate of Samaria look any direction you want. The people who got the greatest blessings from God, every one of them desperate. Bartimaeus, Jairus, the centurion, the woman in the crowd, the Syrophoenician, Mary and Martha, all of them desperate. There was one exception. He was the rich young ruler. And the rest of them were ordinary folks. They didn't begin to compare with him, but he missed it and they got it because they were desperate. I think I've told here before maybe about how I sat in Billy Graham's home some years ago and heard Dr. Nelson Bell tell about the healing of his daughter Rosa Bell Montgomery, dying of tuberculosis in Albuquerque. She wasn't right with God, and she got right with God, and then the thought came to her, maybe God would heal me. She called in some friends, and they had just a little prayer meeting, and she said, I'm not taking any more treatment. And the doctor called Dr. Bell long distance and said, what in the world will I do? And Dr. Bell said, well, if that's the way she wants to do it, we must accede to her wishes. She got well. She had never married. She married. Living today, Catherine Marshall has a chapter about it in one of her books. I came down that mountain on cloud nine that night. And yet, God doesn't do it every time. He didn't heal my wife. But doesn't it do you good to read of a straight out, undeniable case where God just stepped in directly? But Rosa Bell Montgomery was desperate. And I get bothered about comfortable people all over the country that I preach to, and I get to the same place too, and I become complacent. And I love to find somebody in the crowd who's desperate. And if I do, I don't have to beg them to come forward or do any of those things. They do it. I wonder tonight before we close, how many folks there are in this group who have a special, desperate need of Jesus Christ? Now, everybody needs him. Not talking about the run-of-the-mill needs. How many of you tonight have something above the run-of-the-mill? It may take sleep from your eyelids and put tears in your eyes at times. It's a need of body, mind, or spirit, or it's a need of somebody else who's precious and dear to you. Now, if you have to think it up, forget it, because you haven't got it. If you've got it, you know it. And I don't have to ask you to do anything, really. Beg you, I wouldn't put on pressure for anything in the world. But I can't believe that in a crowd like this, everybody's doing pretty well and sort of casual and blasé about it. I believe there are hearts that are grieving here and there are troubled people. You're a Christian, but you have a desperate need. Would you be honest enough? And if you have it, I, you will. If everybody's in good shape and we don't have anybody desperate, we're going to dismiss you and we'll go. But I want us to bow our heads in prayer.
I'd like to know how many of you dear friends can honestly say tonight, Mr. Havner, I have a special, extra, desperate need in my life about myself or somebody else, but I think I can call it desperate, not just ordinary. Pray for me that I may feel the touch of the Master. You know, you can't take a place for granted and think everybody's got all their I's dotted and all their T's crossed and no troubles. Here we are in deep, desperate need before the Lord about ourselves or somebody else. Father, thou didst see the hearts. Oh, bless these dear people and help them not to throng thee, but by simple faith and the simpler the better just to touch thee. As many as touch thee are made perfectly whole. We commend and commit them to thee and help them right now to settle something. Whatsoever things ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them and ye shall have them. Help them to go home and make a red ring around Mark eleven twenty four and say, Lord, there it is, and I believe it. I'm going to take your word about it and trust ye for the outworking of your perfect will in this matter. It may be some personal affliction or problem or need of guidance. It may be some dear one. Thou knowest what it is. Help these people right now without listening to me so much as saying in their own hearts the best way I know how, Lord Jesus. I touch thee right now for my need, and I will believe that thou didst meet it. And you won't get two steps back from here to the devil and say there's nothing to it and all that. That's to be expected, but you're looking to the Lord. You're going to stand by faith upon it, and he will perfect that work which he hath begun in you. And for all of us, May there well up in our hearts a new thanksgiving that Jesus came and a new anticipation, bless God, that he is coming and help us to be ready. We pray in his name. Amen.